Welcome to Mayo Clinic's ECG segment, Making Waves, continuing medical education podcast. Join us every other week for a lively discussion on the latest and greatest in the field of electrocardiography. We'll discuss some of the exciting and innovative work happening at Mayo Clinic and beyond with the most brilliant minds in the space and provide valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Welcome to Mayo Clinic's ECG segment, Making Waves. We're so glad you could join us today. Today, we're gonna look at one of the leading journals in the field of electrocardiography. We'll be joined by a special guest that will have some of the best insight into this and what the future of the ECG looks like. Before we get started, I'd like to introduce you to my co-host, Dr. Peter Noseworthy. Dr. Noseworthy is a professor of medicine and cardiac electrophysiologist. He serves as the director of Mayo Clinic's Heart Rhythm and Physiologic Monitoring Laboratory. Dr. Noseworthy, welcome. I'm so glad you're here with us today. Let's get started. Great to be here, Anthony. Thanks a lot. Since 1968, the Journal of Electrocardiology has been documenting the evolution of the field. This peer-reviewed medical journal remains a go-to resource for clinicians around the world. Today, we'll hear from the editor-in-chief himself, who will help us understand why and how the ECG has stood the test of time, provide insights into the Journal of Electrocardiology, and share where he envisions the field is heading. Dr. Noseworthy, would you please introduce our special guest today? Yeah, of course. Thank you very much, Anthony. Yeah, it's a real pleasure today to have Dr. Baranchuk here. He's a professor of medicine at my alma mater, Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. As you mentioned, he serves as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Electrocardiology, and he's also the vice president of the International Society of Halter and Non-Invasive Electrocardiology. Dr. Baranchuk is the president-elect of the Inter-American Society for Cardiology, and his contributions to the field are vast. He's published over 600 articles. He has over 50 book chapters, 10 books. And those of you who follow him on Twitter have uh, been learning about his recent interest in uh, producing wine. And I don't know if we'll have time to talk about that today, but if not, we'll have him back to talk about it at another time. So uh, Dr. Baranchuk, it's a true honor to have you with us uh, today. And thanks a lot for joining. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Noseworthy and Dr. Cashew for the opportunity to share some thoughts about uh, the role of clinical electrocardiology with your audience. Great. Well, our audience, I'm sure, is very excited to have you with us today. I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about your journey in cardiology, how you ended up where you are today, and uh, where your interest in electrocardiology has arisen. Well, thank you. I I was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, where I did my med school, my training in internal medicine and cardiology, my fellowship in EP. And after working for five years, uh, that was coincidental with uh, one of the subsequent major economic crisis in South America. So I emigrated to Spain, where I spent one year mostly doing animal research in in the Fundación Jiménez Díaz, which is well known for having advanced a a lot in the field of anatomy for cardiac electrophysiologists and uh, insights into atrial fibrillation domains. And through a connection with Professor Carlos Murillo, who was at that time uh, Chief of Electrophysiology in McMaster University, we decided to take the chance of a retraining in an Anglo-Saxon country. So I still have problems with this language, but at that time I had major problems. So I had to go there, end up uh, um, spending two and a half years in Mac, and then I decided to do a, um, 
a solo flight and accepted a position at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, initially as an assistant professor, and then through a research program, I progressed into an associate professorship, and finally in, in, in 2014, 15 maybe, as a full professor. And I had the opportunity to start the AP training program back in 2007 here, and I'm super happy because several graduates are practicing uh, high-level EP all around the world. My involvement, my deep involvement with electrocardiology started from basically the same way that most of electrocardiologists or electrophysiologists enter into this field with some curiosity about the signals and understanding mathematical formulas and trying to, to determine how something printed in a paper would say so much about, about the heart. Particularly, that was uh, very useful for my career as an EP to have a deep understanding of electrocardiology, which started with the old masters from the Latin American school back when I was a med student. And then I got involved with the International Society of Electrocardiology, and I hosted in 2011 a meeting in Kingston where people from all around the world came, came to our place and discussed cases in deep, and I've, I've seen the passion of these guys of going after the meeting and having their real cases, and at, at that time all printed in paper, and as measuring, and, and I found it fascinating. And then I got involved in, in a heavy research production on different domains of electrocardiology. When our um, late uh, Galen Wagner, who was editor-in-chief for the Journal of Electrocardiology for so many years, and put the journal in, in a high visibility place with full indexation in all databases, uh, got, unfortunately got sick. So he decided to make a call for an editor-in-chief replacement. And I had no idea, Peter, Anthony, what I was getting into. I had no backup of someone saying, hey, this is a good candidate. So I applied for the position and my in-person interview got canceled 30 minutes prior to that. And I was, this was attached to one of the ACC meetings in, 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 in the south of, of Florida. And I thought, yeah, of course I didn't get it. That's why they canceled 30 minutes before the meeting. My only support was uh, Professor Wojciech Sareva for the University of Rochester that he saw me developing a career in the International Society of Electrocardiology. So I asked him to, to send a letter, but that was all. And two, three days later, I got a phone call directly to my office with a member of Elsevier apologizing for not showing up for our appointment back in, in Florida. And I said, well, no, I fully understand. Sometimes these things happen and no, nobody texts me or send me any explanation. But they were very apologetic, and they really wanted me to have a full meeting with the selection committee. So we planned for that, and I said, well, I hope this time you guys showed up. I think this was the time of Skype, or we did it in the phone. It's way before the time of, of Zoom and, and the ability for us to connect. And we had a meeting, and I was so convinced that I was not the person for the job, that I was ultra natural, and I said exactly what I thought. <laughs> without that profile that you get when you are truly interested in getting the position because I thought, I'm not going to get it. So let's be 100% honest. And to my, to my surprise, two days later, they called me 
saying, you got the position. So of course I was so sure that I was not the right person that I did not negotiate any protected time in my university. So, well, to make the story a bit shorter, I took this with maximum responsibility. I mean, inheriting this from Galen Wagner was to me a major sense of responsibility because as an author and as a reviewer of the journal myself, I knew how detailed he went on many different topics. The second part was that by then I knew who were the other applicants and there were super respectful colleagues that I had the opportunity to, with most of them, to have a one-to-one -one interaction to say, okay, I am taking on this responsibility, but you are invited to join, to bring your expertise, to bring your view on how to handle this journal and see what else can we do to make it better, more inclusive, to be sure that there is female representation, that all people that has interest, doesn't matter what language you speak, what's the color of your skin or anything else, you have the opportunity to participate. I am now in the first few months of my second term. These are five-year terms. I was delighted that I was invited to renew my, my term after the first five years. This is, this is the journal that represents both the International Society of Electrocardiology, ISE, and the ISCI, our brand of computerized electrocardiology, where our mathematicians, biologists, people modeling new platforms, and now more importantly, artificial intelligence getting into the field, have their space. And we reshaped their participation. I'm not sure if you're interested, but we had to reshape it again during 2021 for this to be applied for next year. So in 2021, there is a supplement dedicated to the, to, to the ISCI papers from next year on, we will have a guest editor in each one of our uh, volumes, of our six volumes per year, with a section allocated for the ISCI content. In this way, the papers, for example, today, if you have a paper accepted in March or April, you have to wait until November for the supplement. I don't think this is fair. This is a field of permanent evolution. We need those papers to publish immediately. So rather than having a separate volume, we're going to collide the ISCI style papers uh, within the, the regular volumes with a section dedicated to that with a guest editor that will be handling those papers. So these, these are good news. I'm super happy to partner with uh, my ISCI colleagues and they bring to electrocardiology a sense that clinical electrocardiology alone cannot do. That's super exciting. I know for myself and Dr. Noseworthy, because all of our, at least CNMI research is in the computer, computerized electrocardiography. So uh, amazing how, you know, an opportunity, kind of a, a, almost a blessing in disguise. I know we're all blessed by all your contributions and leadership in the journal. Because what have you kind of found as, as the editor-in-chief struggles or kind of problems you've faced to ensure that it remains, you know, one of the leading journals uh, in the field? Dr. Kashu, this, this is a great question because basically I enter to this position with the expectation to, for the Journal of Electrocardiology to have the similar impact factor than circulation or jack. I was super excited. I said, I can do this. I will have each one of them citing 
articles, and then you start learning the process and adjusting your expectations. So what I want is high traffic of readers and authors through the electronic platforms. I want the impact factor to increase. So I can't tell enough to authors in general of electrocardiology to consider citing their own work in future publications. That is a way of increasing visibility and to securing that Elsevier will continue to fund this journal because without their commitment, we have nothing. However, I admit that electrocardiology has a specific audience, mostly composed by cardiologists, by computer science individuals interested in, uh, in ele heart electrical signals and by electrocardiologists and electrophysiologists. And our competition is fierce because you still can publish a wonderful ECG in circulation. So how am I going to convince if you have that great case to send it to us at, at 1.5 impact factor versus send it to circulation at 20 impact factor? So once you learn what is the role and the place of your product in the market, then you can make it better. But that took me years of adjusting my expectations and realizing in which a segment of the audience we are going to work. And from there, to be creative, to attract individuals to our field. And in that, and, and you highlighted this, the role of social media and having a social media editor in the journal who is young, who is totally familiarized with the different platforms, it created a new perspective for us. Because now the circulation during, for example, the pandemic of people through the website has uh, tripled than before the pandemic. And that had to do with the coincidental explosion of our presence in the social media to the point that I'm super happy to see that other journals with much higher impact factor are copying the model that we established three, four years ago in social media. And, and that made us very proud. So after a few years, Soheb Hazib, now a med student in Australia, passed the torch to Akira Lidlik, who is a, a Queens med student that is taking care of building up our presence uh, in basically in Twitter, which has been transformed as a vehicle to disseminate knowledge. And, and the cool part is the papers are being discussed not only during the meetings, not only during the presentations of people that take those, those papers to be discussed, but also in the social media. And with their limitations, uh, I think that it helped us bring in high level knowledge to different parts of the world that may have less access to other formats. Remember that the journal is a paid journal. And for example, one of the good things is through the International Society of Electrocardiology website, we've been able to negotiate with Elsevier that two papers of each volume that were not open access, so you have to pay to have access to them, through the website, you can access the PDF for free. And uh, that may be perceived as a small gesture, but for a company that makes money selling the journal, giving us access to, to select the two papers that we think they need to be highlighted, it's a major thing that has increased the traffic and the download of those papers tremendously.
you know, watching the engagement with this material on social media, particularly on Twitter, has been amazing. And the amount of interest that this generates is 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 incredible. It's remarkable to me that the ECG has not changed much over decades, but it still fascinates us. And I wonder if you go back to your early days and how it drew you into cardiology. What do you think it is about the ECG that's so fascinating? Why has it had such an enduring uh, role in medicine for so long? Well, thanks, Peter. That's that's a a lovely question. First of all, we have to remember that as we speak, the most used at the world level cardiology diagnostic tool is the surface ECG. There will be thousands of more ECGs than cardiac MRIs and uh, angiograms than across the world. So the ability of the ECG initially, when you were talking about the early times, to be associated with the diagnostic capacity for a myriad of conditions, conditions that can be cardiovascular or, or let's say cardiac and non-cardiac. For example, the value of ECG for diagnosis of pulmonary embolism has been demonstrated profoundly through literature. And uh, there are several conditions that can be diagnosed, suspected, or to guide initial management based on the simple surface ECG. But the evolution of the ECG moved from the diagnostic capacity to the prognostic capacity. So now with an ECG, I can predict if the CRT that you're going to implant later today is going to have an impact on the evolution of your patient. I can tell you if your patient got Lyme carditis. This morning, I had the opportunity to present uh, cardiology grand rounds for the John Hopkins University before, before coming to you guys. Uh, the ECG can, can tell us whether in the long term the patient may require a pacemaker or not. So, and, and I could be spending minutes and minutes with you telling you in which capacity the ECG now is prognostic. We give an antiarrhythmic drug and we do an ECG or cardiac monitoring to determine whether the patient is responding well or not. I give you a specific antiarrhythmic and I measure the QT. So we moved from the diagnostic angle to the prognostic angle. And that I think is one of the keys of why it persisted over time. The second, the second thing that needs to be mentioned is the simplicity of performing an ECG. And I don't want to be pejorative to the great technicians that put the electrodes in the right place and they take the perfect ECG without interference, right? They deserve credit for doing that. But between you and me, it's much easier to teach somebody how to get a proper ECG than how to do a proper angiogram or a proper electrophysiology study. And the third component is the reproducibility. So if we compare your EP study to mine, we will find differences. We both trained in North America and you may include some measurements that I don't include and vice versa. However, for the ECG, there is a 99% chances that we obtain the identical ECG if we're both applying the, the proper technique. And finally, number four is transmissibility. Today, you have a paramedic arriving to scene, getting an ECG, white complex tachycardia, transmitting this to you. The patient arrives to your ER already in sinus or in tachycardia, and the plan is there. The patient gets a, a VT ablation done there within 24 hours. So it's, it is a common practice in my life to receive ECGs from all around the world 
every single day. And sometimes I say, hey, I'm happy to provide a free, <laughs> a free friendly opinion, but you know what? The quality of the scan of the CCG doesn't allow me to say much. Can, can you improve that before I provide my opinion? Sometimes people get mad and say, hey, man, I'm asking you, about, you know what? Just send me a good one, right? But the truth is, we can have an ECG in a fraction of seconds from any part of the world, and we can guide, provide opinion. So these features, I think, are the, the reasons for the persistence of the surface ECG over 100 years, despite the evolution of imaging in cardiology, right? We have echo, we have strain, we have cardiac MRI, we have CT angio, and nothing seems to replace the old friend surface ECG. At the same time, also, uh, uh, Peter, I recognize that there are some stuff that didn't evolve in the same direction. We still need better filters to have access to more complex ECG features that could help us distinguishing incomplete right bundle branch block from ARVD or things like that, where you need a more precise imaging on the filter. And the second thing that did not evolve at the same pace of other features are the automatic detections. And I know this is in each EP lab in the world, in each EP group, it's part of our teaching. I am sure that Anthony has, has heard this from you several times. Do not rely on the measure QT, measure yourself. Do not rely on the, on the P wave duration, do it yourself because still the automatic detection, and there's lots of research in this, in this domain, is suboptimal. It was not able to replace the, the human eye. The advance of semi-automatic calipers where now they became part of our daily practice. I still walk with my, with my white coat and a caliper in, in, my, in my front pocket. That's, that's part of my tradition. I, I want to be perceived as the guy that all of a sudden will take the caliper and do some measurement, right? But the truth is that in clinical practice, 85% of my ECGs are digitalized and I use uh, semi-automatic calipers to, to, to do measurements if necessary. So major advances, still room to improve. The point is where with artificial intelligence, where is going to be all this knowledge in 50 years from now? And that is, a question that, that remained to be answered. Maybe we can meet, not in 50, but in five years, and, and to see where are we at once artificial intelligence start coming into, into our clinical practice. I, I wish I could replay that all the time, and maybe I should do that before I go to bed because you know I always talk to my wife about the ECG, and some people think I'm crazy that I want to make a career out of it, uh, but you give me hope that there's still a future for it, and uh, you know now that we are even getting different forms of uh, actually recording electrical signals from the heart, it shows that you know the field still has a long way to go, and that cardiac biosignal, the signature from the heart, does not seem to be ever going away. Now, before we end, I do want to kind of get your thoughts in. You know, what are the research that you're taking on today? Uh, what excites you? I've read a lot of your work. And, you know, if you could end, you know, we mentioned a lot about a social media. I want our audience to know where they could find you to ensure that, you know, we help distribute, you know, like-minded uh, topics to our, to our colleagues. Because 
you mentioned, how do we know where to submit? Well, your journal is one of my favorites because I want to submit my work to an audience that's going to read it. My goal is to always bring in more like-minded you know, colleagues to, to join it and join in on the excitement. So if you could just mention a little bit of you know, what you're doing now, you know, your research, I know you have your hands full with the editor position uh, and, and where we could find you. Well, thank you very much, Anthony, for this question. Uh, first, I have to say that I echo your comments. So I, I have a personal experience. When we published in 2017 in circulation our paper on alcohol and cardiovascular health, I was ecstatic because we got 2,500 downloads in the first three months. But then the conversation invited me to do a podcast similar to this one. And that was taken by the Washington Post and they did a full two pages, central two pages on the topic and quoting some of the, of the citations from, from the paper, et cetera, et cetera. And that got 75,000 reads in two days. And then you ask yourself, what do I want as a researcher, as a person of science trying to advance knowledge? Do I want to talk to the 2,500 people that is committed to learn about this and to keep moving? Do I want to talk to the 75,000 people from the community that may benefit from learning some aspects of, of what you do? And I think that it is a multiple hat approach what brings you to positions of leadership as, as, as Peter is now, is investing the same passion and energy to teach your five EP fellows or your 20, 25, you are in a big center, hundreds of cardio fellows or teaching the community or teaching at a inter-American level so you can go with your perspective through the continent. And this has amplified the way that I see promoting high quality science, either from my lab or from your lab or from any lab that is producing high level science is I don't think that I want to target this to the 200 guys that love the ECG as I do. I want to have every cardio fellow, every EP fellow feeling the same passion on the ECG and constructing their knowledge about the, the, the heart electricity with a good fundamental basis. And that comes from the understanding of the ECG. I have no doubts that you can have a perfect ablator for atrial fibrillation a guy that mechanically can reach the LV summit to ablate a PVC. However, that PVC, you can't recognize where it's coming from by reading the ECG. So the ECG is your fundamental basis to construct the proper career in electrophysiology and topics that had to do with electricity of the heart. So if I can contribute to be sure that electrocardiology persists as a fundamental basis for any cardiologist. Remember, recognizing an ST elevation in a small town of Arizona can lead to saving that life and recovering that myocardium if you do a PCI within 120 minutes. If that person is fooling around with an ECG with ST elevation because he's not familiarized with that pattern, that life is over. So. If we engage into this educational idea that the ECG plays a major role in identifying conditions 
that internist, neurologist, cardiologist, electrophysiologist will use to develop their clinical practice and their academic career, I think that we can secure that the ECG is alive for the next 50 years, as, as you were posing in your, in your email. I am delighted to see young individuals taking the torch. We have a position in the Journal of Electrocardiology called Junior Editor. The current junior editor is uh, Goxel Senior from Turkey. And initially, we take papers together, we go through the papers together, we identify what papers should not be sent for peer review and being evaluated for desk rejection, what papers should go into peer review. We review our list and how to contact worldwide reviewers to understand this process. And once the, the junior editor understands how to play this role, then they get independency. And to the point that now I may get an email in the middle of the night because of the discrepancy of timing from Goxel saying, Dr. Baranchak, you didn't send me anything in the last 10 days. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Okay, well, hold on, it's coming. <laughs> so uh, through this opportunity, um, I want you to pay attention to that, Anthony, because it's so encouraging to see a young fellow wishing to develop part of his academic career in this field and domain, that I'm pretty sure that after Goxel completes his position and you're still in your, in your early time of your career, that is something that you may enjoy uh, joining and doing yourself. So I am publicly here committing you to, to <laughs> sorry, someone is going to accuse me of, of making business uh, live but I think it's a perfect opportunity to have you signed for the for the near future. How's that? Well, I, I don't know what to say. That was not expected or <laughs> well, planned. Well, say yes, or, and then you negotiate. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's this is one of my passions. And uh, when we get together with, you know, Dr. Noseworthy and someone like you and the whole crew, uh, it, it's so fun to, you know, just rub ideas off each other and see how we can actually advance the field to ultimately benefit our patients. What an honor, you know, it's, I always feel like I'm standing on the, the shoulders of giants. You know, even when I, I teach, I feel like, you know, yes, it's amazing to do so. And you love to see the joy in those that when it finally clicks, but these are things I'm teaching because I've learned from those that have kind of spearheaded the field. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Baranchuk, where can everyone find your work? Well, um, the Journal of Electrocardiology has its own website, and I invite you, the audience, to go there, to navigate the website, to see what papers are there in open access that can be accessed for free. Then, at J Electrocardiology is the hashtag for Twitter to see what the journal is posting. At Adrivaran is my uh, personal Twitter, and I invite people to follow and we insist on many different topics, both in English and Spanish. So I, I try to maintain a balance uh, when I talk to different parts of the audience. There is something that I want to highlight before leaving you guys. Anthony, you mentioned the role that your mentors have played in, in shaping the cardiologist that you want to be. That to me is a tremendous final message for uh, your audience keeping in mind the people that has made different but significant contributions to the doctor that you want to be is essential for you then to transform in, in the mentor 
for those younger individuals that are going to be learning from you. I can't emphasize enough how important it is in your career to identify that people that is going to pave the way for you, that is going to be there for you when, when you have concerns, when you have doubts, when you have to decide important steps in your career, important steps in your academic profile, right? Is this paper ready to be published or I'm jumping too soon, right? So uh, thank you for highlighting that. Uh, you are in great hands there in the Mayo Clinic, and I'm sure that, that Peter would also recognize the role that, that his mentors play in the developing of, of his own career. I tried to maintain a direct contact with my mentors today during the presentation for, for the Johns Hopkins. I got a phone call from Barcelona from Professor Baez de Luna. At his 86 years of age, he continues to communicate with me every day and to be sure that I understand how to do things. So I cannot emphasize enough your concept, Anthony. I'm super proud that, that you brought this up. Thank you. No, thank you so much. And yes, I, I couldn't uh, leave here without saying Dr. Noah's really, I, I owe a lot to him uh, and all of my work I've done over just the few years. He's uh, certainly couldn't have asked for more. So the way we record and analyze cardiac biosignals continues to evolve, and there's no evidence of innovation in the field slowing down. The Journal of Electrocardiology remains a premier resource documenting advances in this exciting field. Dr. Baranchuk, what an incredible work you've done and continue to contribute to the field. You're an inspiration to myself and to many. On behalf of our team, thank you for taking time out of your day to join us. And thank you, Dr. Noseworthy, for helping out with this. It's been a true pleasure to share this moment with both of you. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast at cveducation.mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to a Mayo Clinic cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform. And tune in every other week to explore today's most pressing electrocardiography topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.